Hey everyone, this is Siobhan, and you're listening to the Creative Outsiders Podcast, where we connect the dots for women storytellers. Simply put, we want to show you it's possible to live your filmmaking dreams. And today I get to sit and chat with Sarah Moshman. It's just so powerful when we can see ourselves reflected back to us. And I was just really tired of going to the movies, which I love going to the movies, and not feeling like I was seeing any kind of real presentation of my lived experience. I would like to say after really getting into documentaries and having a chance to go and look at a couple of her documentaries, I said, I have found my virtual mentor. Like I am so excited and I don't want to hold us back any longer. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me and for your kind words. That was so amazing. No problem. So before we start to talk about your creative journey and being a filmmaker, I always like to ask like kind of quirky, interesting questions. Okay. If I ran into your closest friend or family member, who would they say Sarah was? Gosh, I suppose they would say that I'm extremely motivated and passionate and a little goofy and um, I don't know, really cares about family and friends. Since you are creative and you do wear this hat, and even when I did some research, I saw that you knew from a young age that you wanted to be a filmmaker. How has your family been able to adapt to your creative journey? I'm really grateful to have, still have parents that are really supportive of what I do, mainly because my dad is a filmmaker and TV producer as well. So I don't take that for granted that a lot of families don't kind of understand the artist's journey or they're like, how are you going to make a living at this? But it was always very normal in my family because that's what my dad did. The cameras were always around and the process of production and filmmaking has just kind of been a part of the dialogue and vocabulary for as long as I can remember. In fact, like, you know, my whole childhood is like recorded prior to cell phones and YouTube and all of that. <laughs> like I can literally go into the, the like library in my living room at home in Chicago and find like 1993, what was I up to, you know? <laughs> so no, they've been really supportive. My mom's a, a lawyer, so she gets it as much as she can because she's heard it all from my dad. But you know, they've never made me feel like maybe you should try something else or go get like, quote, a normal job. Right. They've always understood like the ebbs and flows and the, and the highs and lows. That's good. That's a really good benefit to have. I know when I first um, initially like transitioned because my undergrad is in counseling and mm-hmm. I like announced to my family like, oh, you know, I'm going to shift and I'm going to do filmmaking. And my parents are super supportive because like my brother plays basketball overseas so they like get it but when I said it they were like so are you gonna quit your job (laughs) that you make (laughs) and I'm like no 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 like it's gonna be a process and they it's just interesting to see their transition now they're like yeah you can do it we believe in you so (laughs) I definitely don't take that for granted that's awesome Who is the most intriguing subject you have interviewed for any of your documentaries? And how did you prepare to engage in a conversation with them? The first people, it's more than one person that comes to mind is the the team called the Coxless Crew that rowed across the Pacific Ocean from America to Australia, which which are the subjects of my latest documentary called Losing Sight of Shore. These four women are 
extremely heroic. It ultimately ended up to be six women on the team and they just blew me away. They were just incredible and still are incredible people that decided to do something so much bigger than themselves. And I wanted, I had such admiration for them and wanted to be on their team too. And I thought maybe other people would be interested in their story and would want to see and hear and feel what that would look like to be in a boat in the middle of the ocean no one around. I mean, talk about (laughs) isolation. They, you know, on this 29 foot pink ocean rowing boat out in the middle of the Pacific for uh, nearly nine months. And I was just so interested to see what that would look like and how they would take themselves out of difficult moments and how they would uplift one another. So yeah, I'd say preparing for those interviews were really important and really interesting. It wasn't so much about doing research about their past. It was sort of more about asking them about their hopes for the future and what they would intend to get out of this incredible journey they're about to take. So I'd say those were the most interesting interviews I've done, perhaps, because there was so much unknown. (laughs) Yes. And for those who haven't seen it yet, you have to watch it. Like I watched it a couple of nights ago and I want to watch it again. Just because at one, I'm I'm usually not so crying, but I was <laughs> I was crying watching it. Like uh, my brother is putting my stuff up for me, and I'm like, he's like, what are you watching? He was like, it sounds good. He was like, but your your face, like I was so engulfed in just their story and their journey, and at the end, like I was crying. <laughs> I was <laughs> me crying. too. <laughs> Because it just was so inspiring and it was so encouraging just for you to recognize like you literally can do anything that you put your mind to. Like you just really can. So I am so thankful that you decided to actually tell their story. Yeah, thank you. It was it was a huge risk for everyone, of course, for them, but also for me as the filmmaker and and that's sort of part of the story that goes a little bit untold because obviously I'm not in the film, but mm-hmm. You know, I heard about their story, and this was in January of 2015 when I got an email from this this woman named Fiona, who I had corresponded a little bit with in the past, and so she knew my work, and so she just sent me this random email saying, hey, Sarah, I just heard about these four women. They're about to get in this boat and row across the Pacific Ocean. I thought you might want to meet them, and it was just the weirdest email because I was like, why would she think of me for this? (laughs) Like, I'm so not an athlete. Like, I've never rowed before. I didn't even know people did this. So it was just the weirdest email. One of those moments in life where I could have walked right on by and been like, you're crazy. That's crazy. Go, you know, go on with my day. But something about it really spoke to me. And and I ended up Skyping with two of the rowers the next day, like genuinely with the intention to recommend like what GoPro to buy. Like I had no idea what they were really about to do. And, and, And once I heard more about the journey and how they weren't even professional athletes, they were just passionate people that yes, trained for the journey, but really didn't have a lot of rowing experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just floored with, with what they were about to do and how dangerous it was and how much passion they had. And so I decided I wanted to be the one to tell their story. And and, I, and they agreed that I could be the right person. And no more than two months later, I was like standing on the dock in San Francisco at two o'clock in the morning. I'll never forget And I watched them row away with like my life savings in that boat in the form of cameras and hard drives and microphones. I wanted to prepare them to be able to tell their story at sea. And so it was this huge risk not knowing if I'd have a story on the other end or if like two days later, they'd be like, this sucks. We're going to turn around. (laughs) (laughs) So 
it was a really crazy experience. I remember throwing up a lot that night when I went back to my <laughs> hotel. I was like, oh no, what did I just do? What transpired was just truly the most extraordinary journey of my life. And I wasn't even on the boat with them, but I was able to meet them on land along the way um, when they would stop to restock their boat in Hawaii and Samoa and then for the big finish in Australia. Yeah, I'm just blown away that it all happened. It's still hard to believe. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely is. And since you already mentioned it, you had a very short window to prepare. And I thought that was very interesting on the filmmaker's end because you know, especially when we're thinking about films, documentaries, like we want to have this long time to prepare, to raise money. So how did you first get them prepared? Because they're not filmmakers. Like what equipment did you use? And then how did you give them like a quick, like, hey, this is how you need to film make while you're out in the sea rowing on this tiny little boat? <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a tall order. But <laughs> I, in, in some ways, in, in hindsight, I'm glad I didn't have more time. It was definitely stressful, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's real life, right? When you hear a good story, you can't be like, okay, let's do that in a year. Mm-hmm. Like you kind of have to get going because life is happening right in front of you, whether you're ready or not. So it was, it was kind of a great lesson for me. And just like when you hear a good story and just try, just get started. Like I definitely didn't have all the money raised. At the beginning, I had no money raised. I didn't know I was going to be making another film. So I just, I took whatever money I had from my previous film, like the revenue we had created from my first documentary. And I just immediately reinvested it into more work. And I I know some people say not to do that, like don't spend your own money, but sometimes you have to, because it's the only way, you know, I applied for all these grants ultimately, but that takes time. You know, that takes months and months and months to not only have the materials to apply with, but then to hear back and to actually receive the funds and crowdfunding takes time. I mean, it, it all just takes time and that I didn't have. So I just kind of got the money together to, to buy some cameras. I bought the uh, Sony FDR AX100, which is a really great consumer camera. It's, re- it's about $1,700, I'd say, but it's really easy to use, especially for someone that's never been a filmmaker before. It has great like auto settings, honestly, mm-hmm. and it shoots in 4K, which is really great. And it takes little SD cards. Like it's a tiny, like very easy to use camera and it would fit in this like Pelican case that I got for them. And so literally they could just pick it up and turn the LCD screen around. And that was kind of their like interview camera, if you will, kind of like we called it like our confessional cam. Okay. And that one pretty much stayed inside the boat. So there were two areas where they were like the hatch would be closed and they'd be in the different areas of the boat two different cabins where they would sleep and eat and stay out of the sun. So that camera pretty much stayed in there and it had a little Sennheiser microphone to go with it, which sounded pretty good. I mean, you'd be surprised. It's like the film actually looks and sounds pretty good considering how, you know, the the rudimentary equipment that we had and how they were the ones filming. But yeah, when I was with them in San Francisco before they took off, I was with them for about four days in person. And that's the first time I'd ever met them in person. Everything up to that point had been through Skype. And I just started to tell them like, yeah, just pick up the camera when you kind of are least expecting to. Like, don't just pick it up to tell me about the weather. Like, that's not that interesting to me. And I don't think it will be to the audience. Maybe you start with that. And that is part of the story. But what I'm really looking for here is those deeper layers. Like, who are you and why are you doing this? And what is that going to look like when things don't go your way? And that's really, to me, was the film, was the friendship, was the relationships between them, was the struggle. Like, I don't really care about rowing. Like, I still don't. (laughs) It's really not about that for me. 
and that was definitely one of my concerns and certainly one of my biggest challenges was that, you know, this film on the outside might seem like it's about this rowing sport. Like it's mm-hmm. going to be 90 minutes of rowing. No, thank you. Like if, to be completely honest, the film does not even pop up on my own list on Netflix and it is my film. So like that shows how little this film was designed for me in terms of on the outside. But what the film is really about is the power of the human spirit and how we are all capable of so much more than we could ever imagine, like you were saying. Anyway, the, the, the women, the Cox's crew got infinitely better at being storytellers as the journey went on. I mean, with anything, you get better with it over time. And, and they were ended up on the boat for nine months. So they naturally got much better at picking up the camera in, in those uncomfortable moments, you know, in those moments where in real life, they might never pick up a camera and record their thoughts and feelings. But the camera ultimately ended up to be this like fifth member of the team and someone they could talk to, someone they could, you know, in a private moment, kind of admit their their fears and their struggles and their triumphs. And it ended up to be like a really beautiful process. It really did. And now that you mentioned that, as far as you didn't want, because I was nervous, I was like, is this going to be like a lot of rowing? But it's so funny. Totally. <laughs> I It was so, that was secondary. Like I kind of didn't even pay attention to the rowing, minus when they like showed the blisters on their hands. And I was like, oh shoot, they are rowing like for two hours. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But it really, like I got so invested in them, like their story and like how they felt and how like they were all overcoming something personal during this journey. Like I was so invested that what drew me in and it even made me at the end I was like man I want to know what like what they're doing now and I sat there I was like oh yeah she like told us like what's going on with them now so I was so excited about that and that's how you know it was just a connect any human because even afterwards my brother who was like 28 and an athlete he was like tell me the name again I have to watch it you did your job oh that's awesome <laughs> oh thank you so much you're welcome I do have one more question as far as uh, the shots. Okay, when it comes Mm -hmm. to the overhead, because I know what those who haven't watched it, there was no like safety boat going with them. They were out there by themselves, which is just mind blowing every time I think about it. How were you able to capture then the overhead shots? And I know it's a drone shot. So how were you able to do that? Yeah. So in Losing Sight of Shore, really the premise is that these four women are in this boat alone out in the middle of the Pacific. There's no support boat, no follow boat, as you said. So that was a big challenge for me. And at first I thought, okay, well, this is going to be, the film will take place between, you know, the front and the back end of this boat. But Mm -hmm. I was nervous that people would feel seasick. I was nervous that I would feel seasick just watching it. So um, we needed to see the scale of this tiny pink boat in this massive ocean. And the best way to do that would be with drone photography. So what we did is every, and they did not have a drone on the boat. I did not like give them a drone and tell them to figure it out. That would have been <laughs> um, Some people were like, oh, they had a drone on the boat. I'm like, no, this is a little bit of movie magic. So basically what we did is every time they were within about, I'd say about 12 hours of shore. So when they were close to Hawaii, Samoa, and ultimately Australia, myself and a drone operator would go out on a boat as with their shore support, Tony Humphreys, this amazing guy who always knew exactly where they were. And we would go out in, in different vessels in Samoa. We were on this beautiful voyaging boat, Samoa, Samoan Voyaging Society, and it was just unreal, unreal. 
But anyway, we'd go out on the boat and, and find this tiny pink dot on the horizon. It was always just so overwhelming to actually be out in the ocean and see them with no land in sight for us either. And I would always have tears just like streaming down my face because you'd really put it all together and realize that they were actually out there rowing 24 hours a day, two hours on, two hours off. And so that's when we would get all the drone photography. And then I would use those shots throughout the film. So it was impossible to be there with them the whole journey. And I was not there with them. They were really telling their own story at sea. And so those drone shots that we got every time they were within 12 hours of land is what is used throughout the whole film. So it's a little bit of move magic, but it was so necessary to be able to remind the audience how tiny and insignificant their boat was in this massive ocean. And one fun fact that's not said in the film is that when they were between Hawaii and Samoa, which was the longest stretch of the journey by far, it took 97 days to get from Hawaii to Samoa, they were actually closer to the International Space Station than they were to any land or any person. Oh, wow. Yeah, which just absolutely shows the isolation of, of what, they, what they experienced, what they went through near the equator. Yeah, when they got near the equator, I was like, I just feel so sad for them. They were so hot. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, yay, the equator, but you yeah. still have so far to go, so <laughs> yes, keep going. I, like, I, know, I was like, no, y'all, like, I was talking to the screen and everything. It was just so funny. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> awesome. Like, you can do it. Like, come on. I, yeah, I was so invested in everybody. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, it's, I was gonna say, it's worth mentioning also that this was such a low-budget, everyone-pitch-in kind of film. So my husband, who is so not a cinematographer, he does not work in film at all. He was cheap labor, labor as in free. <laughs> we actually bought a drone after our Hawaii experience and we went to the park every day here in Los Angeles and we learned how to use it. And then he was my drone operator in Samoa. It was just like really? all hands on. Yeah. I mean, no pun intended, but it was really all hands on deck. Like, let's just figure this out. And he obviously wanted to come to Samoa, but I was like, well, if you come, then you have to work. You have to do something. (laughs) So he was my drone operator, which was just so fun. And yeah, we have all kinds of fun experiences and stories from that whole journey, which made it even more special, really, that he got to meet, you know, the whole Coxus crew. And we were all kind of like one big family on land. It was really great. That's awesome. So, well, tell him he did a a great job (laughs) because the (laughs) shots are, like you said, it does put it in perspective because you do get really invested in the tiny boat and then you're reminded like, no, they're literally in the middle of the ocean with nothing. (laughs) There's nothing. There's no land. You'll randomly see like whales, but there's nothing. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. It's just, it still blows my mind. And I hope the film can live on for a long time. And to me, it's a really timeless story. It's not tied to any year or time period. It's just, it's really just about perseverance and friendship and and it's really a universal story. And they happen to be women. That was also one of my favorite parts about it. It's like, yes, their boat is pink. Yes, they were rowing in part for breast cancer, but I didn't want it to be this, you know, and I'm all about female empowerment and feminism 100%, but I, I wanted this film to be accessible to absolutely everybody anywhere in the world. So I tried to make it as universal as possible. And the fact that there are these strong female role models, but it's not in your face. It's really like, yeah. And oh yeah. And they're women. Like they mm-hmm. happen to be women. So yes, that's it. I agree. And since you mentioned um, empowerment and women, which is really the, um, how I found you originally is through the empowerment project, because one of my favorite people, Vanessa worked with you on that project. 
Oh, amazing. Yeah. That's yes. so awesome. Yes. I love Vanessa. She's Definitely. And y'all probably have seen, uh, if y'all follow us on our website, we've interviewed Vanessa like twice. And we, I think we interviewed her about her experience on the Empowerment Project. And for those of you who don't know what that is, can you tell us a little bit about the Empowerment Project? Absolutely. So the Empowerment Project, Ordinary Women Doing Extraordinary Things, is my first feature-length documentary. And I had the pleasure of driving across the United States with four other female filmmakers, Vanessa Crocini included. And we drove from Los Angeles all the way to New York to interview inspirational women from all different career fields, from like a pilot to an athlete, astronaut, mathematician, you know, everything, everything we could possibly cover we did uh, within one month. And the whole point was to shine a light on these role models that we're really not seeing enough of in the media. You know, everywhere we look, women are being objectified and over-sexualized or ignored altogether. So this film was really an attempt to create more content that we feel like was missing in the media landscape. And so, yeah, the film is like a combination of the road trip, the five of us, as we get to know each other and as we are inspired by these women and then, you know, the extraordinary stories of these uh, 17 women in total in the longer version and what struggles they've faced and triumphs and, and, and how they've busted through barriers. So it's been, it's been an amazing experience. And why is it, because I know that it's important to you to represent women in a positive light. Why have you actually taken on, I guess you can say this campaign or agenda. Why is this important to you as a filmmaker to portray us in a positive light? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's just, for me, it was an awareness. I've always been passionate about telling girls and women's stories. And maybe I didn't articulate that fully until I got out of college, got out of film school, but it's just so powerful when we can see ourselves reflected back to us. And I was just really tired of going to the movies, which I love going to the movies and not feeling like I was seeing any kind of real presentation of my lived experience as a woman, you know, obviously, you know, women of color have even less, you know, representation of their experiences and women with disabilities. Like there's just so many people being ignored by our large, large media landscape. And I wanted to create something that could, fill a little bit of that gap, but really we're just scratching the surface here. Like there's no shortage of content that can and should be created that makes girls and women feel good about themselves. There's just so much out there that makes us feel less than or makes us feel like our appearance is our most, you know, most valuable asset, which is absolutely not true. Um, And so I thought, well, I should stop being a part of the problem and actually start being a part of the solution. And I'm so glad that I've been working towards these goals because now that I've been able to share the empowerment project finished it in 2014 and you know here we are four years later and we've screened the film over 700 times all over the world um this year alone I I went to uh, Djibouti in Africa to show the film in different communities and it was it's just so incredibly powerful to give a young woman a, a seed of inspiration that she might not have already had by seeing for her to see the possibility in her future is, is something, a feeling that I ever want to never want to get rid of. It is so valuable to, for girls and women and boys and men as well to see these strong female role models. And I think that media absolutely has the power to, to change the world. So yeah, that's what keeps me going. That's what I wake up and get excited about every morning. That's how I feel. I don't, I feel like there's so much like, you know, negativity out in the world. And I just feel like if I do my corner of light, then I did what I was supposed to do. So I'm thankful that you 
are doing that and that you are inspiring women and young girls to see like there is good in us and it's not tied to like our looks. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm learning too. I'm working on a new film now called Nevertheless, which is about sexual harassment. And I'm constantly checking my blind spots. You know, we all have a lot to learn. We all have to be challenging ourselves in the, in these trying times to be better, you know, and to start important conversations that matter. I'm, I'm always learning and I'm always trying to grow and, and be a better filmmaker and be a better person so that we can be as inclusive as possible moving forward. And I, I wish all media makers were that way, mm-hmm. but at least, you know, I'm trying to do my part to, to make the world a better place using film. Cause I think film is such a powerful medium to create change. Yes. I agree. Do you ever see yourself going outside of the documentary and maybe doing something totally opposite or are you okay with like being in the lane lane of a documentary filmmaker? Because a lot of people try to, like, a lot of people aren't, well, I'm not going to say a lot, but people have this picture in their mind of, like, how documentaries are, and you would never get that feeling from either of the two that you just mentioned. Yeah, I think it's a really exciting time for documentary. I think people are seeing the, these kinds of films in such a different light. Mm-hmm. So I love that the definition of documentary is just changing and expanding and growing constantly. Um, and I love the different styles of storytelling that people are bringing to documentary, which also can be narrative in tone. Um, it's no longer like talking heads on PBS and super boring <laughs> and educational. Like it's a whole art form. I mean, you go on Netflix and you got you have your pick of the litter with what you know what to watch. So it, I love it because the definition of documentary is just expanding. For me, I'm open to all of it. I mean, I would love to work in narrative film as well. I, I certainly did a lot of that in like high school and college and would love my, to find my way back to narrative filmmaking, you know, episodic television directing. As long as there is a strong female character involved, I'm super into it in whatever form that takes. And I've already been so delightfully surprised by the way, where my career has taken me. I've been doing a lot of public speaking as well, which I definitely didn't anticipate as like an introverted <laughs> young girl in the Midwest. But it's been such a joy and pleasure to be able to share the stories of my film through talking about them and showing clips and having these dialogues with people in person. So if that's any indication for me, it's that, you know, my, your career can grow and expand and surprise you. And if you just kind of try things and see what sticks, see what fits, see what you like, that can be really powerful. I don't, I don't want to stand in my own way, mm-hmm. especially with a film like Losing Side of Shore. I never would have thought, like if you told me even three years ago that that film would be something I would have even taken part in at all. I would have thought you were crazy. So it's, that's really cool even to think about like, wow, look how, look how much I've been able to expand my work, my portfolio through making a film like that. You know, now I'm working on a film that's about, you know, a social change issue like sexual harassment. So it's a totally different format. And then that's exciting to me. And I'd love to make a film about an individual person, like a portrait piece of someone maybe well-known so yeah, I'm just excited to see what's to come and open to all of it. So how have you been able to find your voice as a documentary filmmaker? You know, I think it's a direct relationship with the people that watch your films. I'm, you can't make a film in a vacuum and just assume that people are going to like it and just keep your head down and, and just create your art 
and assume that it'll be great. You know, it's a, it's a back and forth process. And I think that's part of the reason why it takes so long to make these films is mm-hmm. you kind of have to put them down sometimes and let them marinate and like hate them for a little while and then come back and be like, all right, this isn't so bad. How about this change? You know, you're, you're ebbing and flowing in your life and that definitely reflects in your work. So for me, I do a lot of test screenings where I'll show the film to my intended audience, but also people that maybe aren't in my intended audience to see what they think and get their perspective. I'm pretty good at like taking in a lot of opinions and then distilling that into like solid action steps. Because sometimes people aren't just aren't going to like your work. Some people just aren't going to get it. And there's some great saying, I forget, this is, I hope I do it justice, but it's something about like, you could be the juiciest peach, but some people just don't like peaches. And I just love that because it's, it's a good line. <laughs> it's so good because it's so true. Like I could make the best possible documentary about women ever, but some people just don't care about that subject matter and never will. And you kind of just have to own that. And maybe you'll be able to change some people's minds, but you might not be able to, like you can't please everybody. So it's a very humbling process to say the least, especially right before you're done with the film, you're sort of in this very insecure bubble of like, is anyone going to like this? Is this a total failure? Did I just waste two years of my life on this and all of the money I have? Like, it's a very scary process. That's definitely what it was like at the end of Losing Sight of Shore. I felt really proud of the movie. I even had a screening for like all my friends and family, like for my birthday. It was just like, oh, I just need to celebrate being done with this. Then it was about, I'd say three months from then when, before I heard anything back from any festivals and ultimately my sales agent called me in December. I was like, hey, we, you know, we got an offer from Netflix, which was like literally the greatest day of my life since I'm pretty before, sure it was <laughs> before, before having a daughter. That was my great, the greatest day of my life. And it was just such, such tremendous validation that, that, you know, we had made something good and that they'd have any notes. It's like, I, I thought maybe when you sell to Netflix or license to Netflix rather that they'd be like, we like it, but change these 10 things and then we'll buy it. Mm-hmm. But it was literally like, we love it. Okay. Deliver it. And I was so humbled and overwhelmed by that, that, you know, the film was, was good enough to be on their platform as is. I was just floored. And so that was just an incredible end to an already unbelievable adventure and journey. But I was certainly feeling very low after making that film. Like, no one's even going to watch this and I don't even know what's going on. I mean, it's such a tough process. But yeah, all that to say, you you just kind of listen to who's responding to your pitch. I'm constantly telling people what I'm working on, and then I'm very clo- paying very close attention to how they're responding to it. And I knew that Losing Sight of Shore would find its audience because every time I told people what I was doing, like, oh, these four women, they're rowing across the Pacific Ocean, there'd be like 10 follow-up questions. They'd be like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. Wait, how do they how do they go to the bathroom? And you know, like, mm-hmm. what do you mean they're rowing twenty four hours a day? So I thought, okay, if people have these kinds of questions, then they might want to watch the movie. You just kind of have to listen and bounce back, and you can't make your film in a vacuum because then it won't be any good. Like you've got to kind of listen to what what people are caring about, what people don't care about, when people are getting bored, all of that. And it can be tough and humbling to to go through all of that, but it'll make you a better filmmaker. So for those who are listening and maybe have an idea for a documentary and they don't have experience or they look at your uh, resume, which is so amazing, and see that you have won an Emmy and they're like, but wait, I don't have an Emmy under my belt. I'm not on Netflix and they may get discouraged. What advice do you have for them to get started? 
Yeah, I love this question. What's so great about documentary is that the barrier for entry is really quite low and in the best way. And so like, let's think about narrative for a second. Like for a narrative film, you've got to have a script, you've got to have a crew, you've got to have a cast. You need some, at least a very a small budget to get started and other people to help you. Um, and that doesn't mean you can't do that as well. But with documentary, you really just need a good story and all of the rest will come into play. I mean, so my best advice is just to get started and not to think too far ahead mm -hmm. with all the different steps that are coming your way, because then you might never begin. So really, you know, what I tell anyone is just to maybe do that first interview. And maybe that first interview is over Skype. And you, of course, get the permission of the person you're talking to, but maybe you record that interview. That's really the first thing that I did with the Cox's crew. When I heard the story, I was like, okay, wait, this is too amazing to pass up let me interview these women on Skype and just kind of see what they're like on camera, like hear more about their story. So before I even committed a dollar to this idea, I interviewed all of them on Skype and then I watched them back and I cut together like a very rudimentary sizzle reel of who they, who, what, where, when, why of the story. And I, it was really more for me. Like I, I thought I was making it for grant applications and potential funders, but really it was for me to see who are my characters? What is the story going to be about? And is it worth my time to, to try to go tell it? And it absolutely was. And so I think that's really the first step is, you know, maybe doing that first interview and it, does, it could be on your phone. Like it doesn't have to cost a lot. And just kind of take those couple steps and, and think about what the film could be. Maybe it's a short, maybe it's a series, maybe it's a feature, like you'll figure that out later, but start to think about, you know, who are my characters? What is this event taking place or kind of what makes this story compelling to me? And does that mean it would be compelling to others? So yeah, I would just say, don't get too overwhelmed with all of the things and all the money you might have to raise and all the time you might spend. You might never get started if you think too far ahead. And I think that's what's really special about documentary is just if you've got the passion and you've got a good story, you're golden, I promise. That was a really good advice. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. So I have my famous last two questions of the podcast. Okay. What are you watching and what are you reading? Ooh, okay. I'm reading a book called Amateur Hour, which is a, a book of uh, essays about motherhood. I have a six-month-old daughter now, so I'm very, I'm in this like weird identity shift of like being super career focused and also trying to understand what it means to be a parent, to be a mother. So that's, that book is really, really interesting to me and funny. What am I watching? Oh, I'm actually watching Queer Eye right now and I'm loving it. I haven't it is, watched it yet. You're the second person who has mentioned that on here. <laughs> really? Uh -huh. I don't know. I, I guess everyone was talking about it and I was like, I think I saw the original version, but like, I'll check it out. It's sort of like, yeah, how bad could it be? And it's so delightful and it just sort of brings you joy. And I, I like content that makes me smile. You know, it's like, I, I want to watch The Handmaid's Tale, for example, but I also don't want to feel so sad and like, right. out. <laughs> so um, I'm more into the positive content. So I'm watching Queer Eye. And then my favorite show of all time is Parks and Recreation. And so I watch that like, maybe every night right before bed, a little bit. So that's like my, my comfort zone. My security blanket is listening to Leslie Nope talk. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so tell our listeners how they can stay connected to you, how can they support you, and where they can find you. 
Sure. So if you want to connect with me, I'm on Twitter at Sarah Mosh. I'm on Instagram at Sarah Moshman, S-A-R-A-H-M-O-S-H-M-A-N. You can go to my website, sarahmoshman.com. And my two films you're interested in watching are The Empowerment Project, Ordinary Women Doing Extraordinary Things. That one's available on iTunes and Amazon. And then Losing Sight of Shore, which is about the four women who rode on the boat. That's on Netflix Worldwide. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Sarah. I enjoyed it and I learned a lot. Thank you. It was a joy to be on it. And everyone, make sure you go and check out everything that she mentioned. Make sure you go on Netflix. Let me know if you watch it because I was crying. Let me know if y'all cry too. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) I'm just being sensitive, but it's so good. Uh, Make sure that you follow the Creative Outsiders on Instagram or on Facebook. You can go visit our website. Our show notes are located on there as well. So anything that we mention as far as books, movies, equipment will be listed on there as well. And make sure that you comment, give us feedback. And until next time, don't talk about it, be about it, go live those filmmaking dreams.